Okay, I think we should get started in the interests of keeping more or less to our schedule. Um, I'm Martha Himmelfarb from the Religion Department, and um, I just want to say how delighted we are to have been um, invited to co-sponsor this event and to um, bask in a little bit of the glory of this wonderful occasion um, without having had to do any of the hard work, and we have to thank uh, um, the Madison Program and uh, the Finkelstein uh, Center for this um, really um, very impressive uh, um, colloquium. And I, I, I've said to a couple of the participants that I think what has impressed me most as someone um, from outside the field is how um, what a wonderful job all of the participants have done in uh, communicating their their quite complex thoughts in a way that is clear and really, you know, I mean, I, I always do better when I read something than when I hear something, but I think in the category of hearing things, they've done just a, a really wonderful, wonderful job. Um, it's a real pleasure to introduce um, Len E. Goodman, a Professor of Philosophy, and Andrew W. Mellon, Professor in the Humanities at Vanderbilt University, the next speaker. Uh, I'm not going to read you all the publications that are listed in his little booklet, but uh, in the little booklet here, but it's, it's an extremely uh, um, impressive range of interests uh, that, that you find there from uh, um, Jewish and Islamic philosophy in the Middle Ages to uh, contemporary issues, Judaism, human rights, and human values, um, very, uh, you know, extraordinarily wide-ranging, um, and it's really an honor to have him here today. Thank you so much, Martha. I want to say, as others have, what a privilege it is uh, for me and for all of us to, to be here at the Madison Center. Uh, profound appreciation to Alan Middleman uh, for putting this idea together and for the uh, uh, Madison Center, Robbie George, and uh, the staff. I uh, appreciate that very much, Judy, uh, for your efficiency and, and, and help and care. I, I know it's meant a great deal to all of us to have you there. A um, couple of overdicted. I promised uh, uh, Bill Galston I wouldn't say anything significant until he walked through the door. Uh, uh, just a, a few thoughts to throw out while people are finding their sheets, uh, their seats. I don't think that value is in the first instance relational. That's something about who I am. I don't think that naturalism has to be reductionistic. I don't think that relations constitute our identity. I think they condition it, but they don't constitute it. I think that's overstated, and if you take that overstatement too seriously, it gets you in trouble. Um, and uh, one of the things that I've learned from listening to my fellow philosophers at this conference is it makes an awfully large difference uh, what texts and what figures we treat charitably, what texts and what figures we treat critically or supercritically. I like to tell my students that the best place to apply criticism is to ourselves, and uh, uh, it's very, very interesting to me how people can make a stretch for the philosophers that they like and uh, refuse to make that kind of allowance for others that they uh, disapprove of for various reasons, sometimes unrelated to the conditions and questions evolved. Uh, our brief today, as I understand it, is to try and explicate the impact of America on our own philosophical work. In this regard, uh, three areas come immediately to my mind. First, America is a free and liberal society. My love of America translates into support for America's security and well-being, a sense of fellowship with other Americans, admiration for the institutions and ideals that make America a nation, 
defined, as has already been stated, not by race or language, but by history, situation, and destiny, and more fully, by ideas, and by our own commitment to put those ideas into practice. Not that I would fail to criticize America, but I'm cherry of knee-jerk criticism, cliches of protest, and the rhetoric of alienation. America is mine, and I'm not a stranger here. America's liberal foundations resonate in my work in Jewish philosophy, in my deep repugnance for dogma. I celebrate the biblical and rabbinic traditions for rejecting dogmatism and seeking adequate ways of conciliating the claims of community and tradition with those of law and justice in a wholesome middle ground between identity politics on the one hand and atomistic anomy, formalism, or legalism on the other. Second, America is a product of the Enlightenment, not just the political Enlightenment of Locke, but the intellectual Enlightenment that made the modern age. But we were spared the excesses of the Jacobins, and thus spared the reactions of de Maistre and Bonald, and spared the romantic anti-scientism that saw only the ugliness of the Industrial Revolution and that deeply feared technology and science. Scientism has bred its own reaction in America, giving a cachet to cults and mysteries and creating a market for willful superstition. But I was raised in the humanistic tradition of science and invention. My life was saved many times over in early childhood by new antibiotics that turned ammonia and scarlet fever from mortal plagues into rites of passage. My childhood saw the coming of the Salk vaccine and Sabin vaccine, and my youth witnessed the discoveries of Watson, Crick, and Franklin, and the world's entry into the extraplanetary realm of space. Science, to me, has never seemed a panacea, nor have I ever taken scientism and its mythos as the keystone of a way of life. But neither have I doubted the findings of natural science or set up dream battles in my mind between poetry and logic or science and religion. The core message of my book, In Defense of Truth, is that the arts and sciences, religion and politics, must answer to common canons of veracity, although they may use different idioms and methods and focus on different facets of reality. There is, I am convinced, just one reality, although there are many languages in which to describe it, and truth itself asks all of us to address it with the same responsiveness and sensitivity. Thirdly, the area where American roots surface in my Jewish philosophy, thirdly, is in my ideas about critical appropriation of tradition. Jewish history is long and reflective, often reflexive, taking its own experience as the matter with which it has to work. But disruptions have been frequent, and continuity is hard won. Repeatedly, Jewish thinkers have had to rediscover or reinvent what was lost or forgotten, rediscovering old meanings, plumbing old texts for insights not yet brought to light. Every new environment brings new foods and modes of dress, new given names for the children, new questions to be answered and old answers to be questioned. We can see the reworking of tradition in the palimpsest of the Tanakh and hear the welter of voices in the dialogue of the Talmud, the Tosefta, the Midrash, the Responsa, and beyond the canon in ethical wills, commentaries, songs, stories, works of philosophy, poetry, and protest. Critical appropriation is the engine of creativity in Jewish philosophy, as it is in any living tradition. So the three points I'm going to address then, the liberal tradition, 
which I see in terms of a rejection of dogma and dogmatism and in terms of an integration of community with society, the Enlightenment, which I see not only in terms of uh, the uh, political Enlightenment that gave us liberalism, but also in terms of the intellectual Enlightenment that gives us modern science and technology. And thirdly, the, um, the idea, the synthetic idea, really, of the critical appropriation of tradition. First, then, the most striking distinction of Judaism from Christianity and Islam is the pallid face of doctrine in our culture. Judaism is not a faith system, but a way of life. There is a system of ideas, of course, but not a catechism. As Mendelssohn wrote, and it's been quoted already last night, there is not in the Mosaic Law a single commandment, thou shalt believe or not believe. Faith is not commanded. Where the question is of eternal truth, there is nothing said of believing, but of understanding and knowing. The Torah, that's the end of the quote, the Torah motivates its ideas in the same way that it institutes its ethos and the virtues it seeks to cultivate, through practice, not through dogma. The ideas of God and creation, paradigmatically, are enshrined in the Shabbat, the Sabbath. The hope of restoration and the love of freedom are inculcated not as a scheme of tenets, but through the celebration of Passover at the Seder table. The ideals of purity and holiness at the core of the biblical ethos are taught not by confessions, but by, law, by a law that projects ethical practices as constitutive in the good life, with the token boundaries symbolically in, in symbolically freighted rituals rendering visible the intentions of the heart. If you want to read it enormous length, what I've said about some of those symbols, uh, read a couple of the chapters in God of Abraham, particularly the chapter on rational law, ritual law, biblical laws of diet and sex. Even Maimonides' 13 articles of belief serve not as a creedal trial, but as a key element in the understanding of immortality, explaining how the Mishnah can promise a portion in the world to come to all Israel and to the righteous of all nations by making belief a surrogate of knowledge if not a window on the understanding that would bring us closer to God and thus to immortality. To be sure, Judaism is replete with ideas, but we do not find the meanings of our biblical narratives through credence or credulity, and the virtues of hope and justice, trust and cheer, truthfulness, purity of heart, and depth of caring are not the work of belief but of character. As Rabbi Jacob Joseph Katz of Polonia and Volhynia said in the 18th century, Faith is devotion to God. What then of the first sentence of the Decalogue? Crescus argues that these words, if they were a commandment, well, then the whole Torah would become a matter of circularity. It would all be suppositious. We're ordered to obey God's laws, but the duty to accept them would be contained among them. Maimonides does take, I am the Lord thy God, to issue an imperative, which all the rest of the law depends upon. But that makes Maimonides justly sensitive to the Torah stipulation that these words were heard by all Israelites, not relayed by Moses, all of us, and that not only in the past, have God's absoluteness laid before us. We're meant to see, independently or with one another's help, that the absolute must be perfect and that our history has linked that perfection with our destiny. And so the fact that we apprehend this idea for ourselves is the key to avoiding the kind of vicious circularity that Crescus was worried about. I resonate to the fact that Judaism does not enforce a dogma, 
but invites commitment through its ritual and ethical practices and the symbols that point up and help define its ideas and ideals. Pascal writes that masses in holy water do not create faith, but they do, he adds, lay its foundations. The same can be said of Thales and Tvilin, Kashrut and Mila. Still, if the commitment that we have to Judaism is a matter of conscience, is the enforcement of rituals as the vehicles of values and ideas any less illiberal than the enforcement of belief? The issue remains a living one today when communal vitality and ethnic survival hang in the balance. Life in America challenges us to ask, how can religious bodies remain voluntary associations and religious obligations remain freely chosen if our moral spiritual commitments, indeed the full fabric of religious observance, are construed as commandments of the living God, matters, of not, matters not of faith or personal preference, but of law? The answer, I think, itself depends on another kind of faith, specifically faith in the vitality and relevance of our ideals and practices. This, I think, is the meaning for us of the commandment to teach God's mitzvot diligently to our children, to speak of them in our homes and in public, to reflect on them morning and evening, bind them on our hands and arms to effectuate our choices, hold them out before our eyes as a guide to action, and display them for all to see on the doorways and gateposts of our homes. Job, according to the rabbis, was tested twice, first with prosperity and then with penury and sufferings. Our people has had more than its share of sufferings, but America tests us with liberty. Confidence in the truth of our idea about God and trust in our calling to become a holy people and a light to the nations mark our path forward, if that path is to remain free. The kernel of truth in Sartre's biting claim that all faith is bad faith lies in the recognition that the faith that needs enforcement is a faith uncertain of its roots. It is here that I see a proper role for Jewish philosophy in America in helping us shed dogmatic accretions and pressures to conformity that arrogate to themselves the mantle of religion. Trust and openness create alternatives to the insularity and parochialism of positivist orthodoxy. They help us cleanse ourselves of the would-be progressivism that seeks validation not in the Torah's timeless message, but in political correctness. Trust and openness sustain and are sustained by philosophy when philosophy gives us confidence that our thoughts are well-reasoned, our intentions sound, and our actions faithful to principle, in no need of being hidden away hermetically or shrouded in dogma and obscurantism. Abraham trusted God's promise that his descendants would be countless as the stars and a blessing to the nations. How could he be so sure of that? Only because he grasped the power of an idea. By purging the horror of violence from the holiness of the divine, monotheism allows the integration of all affirmative values in a dominion of justice and truth. The trust inspired by this idea gleams steadily in Isaiah's counsel, be firm and calm and unafraid and do not lose heart. Only in trust is there safety. Leo Beck voiced the same message, calling our faith not a doctrinal system, but a capacity of the soul to perceive the abiding in the transitory. Abraham's idea will spread and grow, allowing the nation who bear it to flourish as a light 
to all nations, the little child that leads them, not by force, not by power, but by the shining exemplar of a life well lived. Parochialism has no proper place in the dialogue that makes for America's integration. Separatism and particularism, racism, and even the invidiousness that sometimes disguises its motives under the specious banners of pluralism and communalism are at odds with American ideals and with the Jewish experience. Dialogue builds the sinews and joins the hands that unite a nation and give it not just strength but good sense and responsiveness to diverse interests and concerns. Dogma feeds on fear and shelters in a refusal to discuss our differences and commonalities. So it evades the Torah's command to test all claims that we hear and fails the rabbinic test, which identifies as wise those who learn from every fellow human being and holds us accountable for all that we have seen and refrained from tasting and enjoying. The second area I want to touch on is naturalism, evident to anyone who reads a little of my stuff. Never having been scientific, I have nothing to live down in my outlook on science. I have never been tempted by reductionism, so I have never thought, sought refuge in obscurantism. From my first examination of religious experience in my honors thesis I even too filed, the mysticism that has interested me was rational mysticism, the tradition extending from Parmenides and Plato to Spinoza and beyond. I was raised with a healthy distaste for superstition and a wholesome disrespect for the occult. I have a deep and abiding love of the sciences, especially biology, and no Heideggerian phobias about technology, no yearning to hide out in the black forest with the trolls and gremlins and far uglier specimens of humanity. I harbor a deep respect for the sciences, for the patient creativity of inventors, engineers, and designers. I do believe that engineers at their best are creative, and so for that matter, are administrators. Some of you had the privilege of knowing my late first wife, who was a creative administrator. And I learned from watching her work that my rather stereotypic image of administrators as people who just execute other people's policies was terribly misguided. I also learned from watching her work that the old story about the camel being a horse invented by a committee um, is uh, not necessarily so if you uh, if, if committees go as they should, they could actually be creative themselves. Um, my old former Arabic uh, fellow student, Dick Bullitt, wrote a book about the camel, which also tries to show that the camel is not such a bad invention after all, if you live in a place where there aren't a lot of roads. The sheer, um, the, the, the work of um, administrators, engineers, and other people who uh, work at the interface between ideas and material reality. That kind of work fails if those folks fail to think creatively, but it flourishes when they unite creativity with critical thinking. The sheer intellectual curiosity of discoverers is prescious to me. I find no prurience in scientific curiosity. I have no fears that it will open some ungovernable Pandora's box. I am not, in C.P. Snow's telling phrase, an intellectual Luddite. If there is something dark and dangerous in the work of science, I believe it's only because we've put it there by confusing power with violence, which I agree with Ken that uh, the point of the story of the binding of Isaac was to purge our ideas of divinity from that confusion, to get rid of the idea that the divine, in order to be holy, must 
be powerful and therefore violent. I think that uh, uh, Jews carry as part of our culture a, uh, a commitment to that understanding, and I think that we need to carry that into our understanding of science and into our understanding of technology. I say again, if there's something dark and dangerous in science or in technology, it's because we put it there. Knowledge does give us power as well as understanding. Either can be used for weal or woe in nature and ourselves and against one another. But the appetite for knowing is not the enemy, and the naturalism that grows from the desire to understand nature and master it, which is the mandate of Genesis, is not the foe of God or beauty or morality, but their powerful friend and ally, suborned at time, but never worse or better than the human hearts that have to read its message. Naturalism, to me, does not mean atheism or any positivist neutrality about values. I do not believe that our ancient predecessors thought more slowly or that medievals talked more slowly than we do. So, if poets speak of miracles or prophets lay down laws, the response in antiquity would have been as varied and subtle and modeled and open to doubts and descants as any such words would do today. Idioms, symbols, customs, and conventions change. But if we want to understand what a miracle looked like, we need to consult our own experience, visual and emotional. And if we want to understand how laws were promulgated and received, we need to translate our own jurisprudence of expedience and uniformity into jurisprudence where fairness is God's concern and an unchanging law for all is a fresh and revolutionary idea, vouched for by the word of God as spoken and reported to his prophet, but deriving its authority ultimately not from arbitrary fiat, underscored by thunder and light show in the heavens, but from its claim to justice and its worthiness of ascription to the author of creation, the caring and generous provider of light and life, sustenance and cosmic order. The Torah endures as a guide to life, not for its occasional reflections of pagan piety and its environment, but for its power to rise above that plane and give us richer and more realizable ideas of transcendence. So I don't privilege readings of scripture that presume only the crudest and most primitive notions accessible to the biblical authors or their audience. I think the Torah uses simple language and concrete imagery because it seeks a certain timelessness which it has miraculously achieved. The rabbis, at their best, thematize the Torah's interests, keeping them fresh and accessible, quite often as intended, and often again with value added or with time-bound crotchets bracketed, bracketed and ironed out. The medievals, thinkers like Saja and Maimonides, re-thematize the Torah and the Talmud. I don't find them inaccessible, and I recoil from commentaries and translations that set them at a remove and make them alien. For these men speak our language and build bridges for us to the much more exotic idiom of the Psalms, Job, Kohelet, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Deuteronomy. My naturalism here serves to unify my experience. It enables and empowers the humanism that can hope to find nothing human, nothing human utterly alien. It enables me to use the rule of charity to learn from others whose lives are unlike mine, although the categories of their experience are the same. But my naturalism goes further. It does not just trust the uniformity of the laws of nature and thus expect a constancy in experience, but it also affirms the value of what I see in nature. I find real value in life and freedom 
in wisdom and other virtues, and in being itself. It is because I find reality beautiful and good that I can affirm the unity of each being's prima facie deserts with, its, with the claims of its conatus, its unique and dynamic essence. Justice, I find in the equilibration of deserts, in keeping with the ontic magnitude of such claims. And rights, I find in the plateau of claims made by and articulated in the dignity of human persons and persons in general. This idea that being itself is precious, that existence is a blessing, that reality is a good, makes me perhaps somewhat impatient with those who scratch their heads over whether goodness is a natural or a non-natural property. I don't think it's a property at all, but the very reality of beings, never to be scorned, but not to be confused with facticity, the core mistake of those committed to a naturalistic fallacy and of those who skirt too widely from the recognition of the unity of being with value in an effort to avoid such a fallacy. Citing value in being leads me to the ontic theory of justice that, that is at the core of my normative philosophy. It makes me chafe at the familiar contractarian tradition of political and moral thinking, which I fear sinks too readily into relativism. I see contracts as an index of fairness, not as its criterion. This is one place where I think American political thought has something to learn from the ontic tradition of Jewish thinking which does hold being precious and finds a pinnacle or plateau of preciousness in the dignity of persons. My naturalism, then, is as alive in ethics and politics as it is in ontology and epistemology. The false dichotomies that make science an enemy of value and that bundle beauty, truth, and goodness apart from nature are the sort of splits that my own synthetic bent in philosophy strives to overcome. My big project for some years now, has been a book on God and evolution, aiming to demonstrate the deep compatibility of naturalism with theism. But my naturalism runs deeper into metaphysics because I see being as a value and into epistemology where I've defended a non-reductionistic but hardly deflationary correspondence account of truth and its active presence in the sciences and the arts. My philosophical method is synthetic. And if it weren't for the constraints of time, I would, I would have a couple pages here to tell you about uh, the kind of difficulties that uh, an excessive emphasis on analysis has engendered in uh, Anglo-American philosophy. My philosophical method is synthetic, not analytic. Not that I eschew analysis. I think distinctions are critical to any intellectual work. Aristotle defines intelligence as swift recognition of a middle term discriminating one class of things from another, but also seeing the connections among things that, on the face of it, are unrelated. Analysis and synthesis, then, would be opposite sides of the same coin. Neither can work effectively without the other. Philosophical disputes, as I see it, often arise from our failure to reconcile competing values or apersues. The outcome, if not a battle royal, is typically a standoff. Thinkers compartmentalize free will and determinism. You could see that in Kant. Reason and experience, chance and necessity, science and religion, explanation and the sense of the absurd. The great philosophers, I believe, are those who overcome these dichotomies, not by denying them dogmatically, as some simply object to the subject-object distinction, not by ignoring them, as many sophists and sophisticates have tried to do, ignoring, say, the universal human interests in questions of right or justice or truth, 
by declaring justice a contract or truth a convention or an imposition, but by reconciling seemingly opposed views, discovering what is sound and solid and what motivates each one, and exposing the apparent opposition as too sharply drawn. Plato did that paradigmatically with Parmenides and Heraclitus. Parmenides saying everything was in flux, Heraclitus, I'm sorry, Parmenides saying nothing changed, and Heraclitus saying everything was in flux, and Plato found a way, not a way that I accept, but it's a way that's very creative, of, of combining those two seemingly uncombinable opposites. Avicenna did the same with the opposition of the eternal and contingent, saving the world's constancy and continuity for science without sacrificing its dependence upon God by arguing that all finite and determinate things are contingent in themselves but necessary by reference to their causes. Spinoza similarly resolved quite a few seeming antinomies, starting with the many and the one and moving on to such familiar if false dichotomies as liberty and determinism, cognition and volition, reason and emotion, skepticism and knowledge, power and justice. Um, that's a rapid, rapid summary of a couple of things. If you want to have a look at my book on Avicenna, I spell out what he did at length. If you look at the long essay I wrote in uh, the Goodman-Ravin book on Jewish themes and Spinoza's philosophy, I go through 13 different areas where Spinoza reconciled apparent uh, polarities and overcame them, one of the marks of his greatness as a philosopher. My own efforts, richly aided by the work of earlier philosophers, are more in the spirit of Plato's and Spinoza's conciliations than of Kant's compartmentalizations. Thus, with free will, I have argued that its seeming rival in determinism rests on a false dichotomy arising in the assumption that if all events are causally determined, all must be externally determined, negating or ignoring the extent to which we ourselves choose our own acts and form our own character. There's a wonderful Zen story about that, about the 11, the 11 disciples who were weeping by the river because they, uh, they counted, uh, and there were 11 when they came, and, and, and now they counted only 10. And uh, I guess a poor peasant walked along and found them there weeping and pointed out to them that each one of them was forgetting to count himself. In regard to truth, I have defended a realism, a place where Jewish and American commitments meet as allies, ascribing the familiar opposition between correspondence and coherence to a false demand for certainty, I've called coherence back to what I see as its proper role, not rivaling, but powerfully and effectively confirming our descriptions and explanations of what we behold. As for the synthetic and analytic, I've argued that when context is allowed for, familiar worries over the distinction dissolve. The same sentence will be read analytically or synthetically, depending on the assumptions invoked to support it. And with human creativity, I've sought a middle course between the romantic and logicist mystiques, arguing that creativity is neither a passive implant nor a product of the play of chance, but like all our judgments, a product of thoughtful, indeed synthetic work. When my current project is completed about God and evolution, I'm hoping to address the mind-body problem and the nature of the soul, and I will do so, of course, in the same spirit. Confronting the opposition between classic liberal and communitarian political thinking, I've similarly sought syntheses. So I've argued that community is indeed stronger than the form formalism of societal relations, but that for that very reason, it must be, community must be regulated at the extremes by formal rules and institutions. And I've argued that the split between deontology 
and consequentialism in ethics is too sharp. Paraphrasing Kant's famous words, I've urged that morality without interests is empty and pragmatism without principles is blind. The eudaimonism of the Torah, I've argued, points to a stable middle ground that fairly integrates the aims that call upon our energies and principles that rightly guide them. I see the mosaic ideal of a life viable for all as an alternative to the romantic myth of inevitable tragedy. The synthetic ideal inspired by the Torah and powerfully underwritten by the conceptual work of Aristotle and Plato is heartened and given body by the American experience, which confirms my trust that a good life is possible for the individual and society and in time for humanity at large. Thirdly, the critical appropriation of tradition. The traditions I love are historic and particular, not generic, and there's a similar particularity in my response to change. I've never been convinced by the arguments of Burke or Oakeshott or even by Hayek's thoughtful organicism that long practice is a valid stand-in for justice or that long tenure and familiarity can take the place of truth. I've never seen faith as a way of knowing or an able substitute for reason. By the same token, I do not believe with Mill that just any dispute will be likely to lead to truth or that just any experiment in living is worth trying or worthy of praise or support just because it's tried or just because it hasn't been tried. Nor do I concur with with Dewey's lingering concession to Herbert Spencer that change somehow is inevitably progressive. I'm suspicious of invisible hands, even in the marketplace of ideas and lifeways. Such agencies seem a bit too eerie to be real, or when they take on life, a bit too hidden to be trusted. I think planners and projectors should lay their cards on the table The experiments in living that I'm most ready to trust are the unrhetorical kind without a party pre or slogan or poster child that essentializes the exotic or typifies the extreme. Experiments, I think, should be judiciously laid out and well-grounded in experience, cautious about their impact on human subjects, and undertaken with due regard and due diligence, careful scrutiny of human history and human nature, openly and thoughtfully on the lookout for unexpected consequences, even as they essay the unlooked-for risks inherent in all efforts to retain an unexamined status quo. Genesis recycles the mythic language of Mesopotamia to motivate higher and more sublime concepts than ancient, that the ancient mythos bore, than the ones that the ancient mythos bore. The story of creation and the catalog of beasts, of begats, give way to the patriarchal narratives of rivalry and succession, covenants and promises, lonely vigils and visions, sacrifices on new-made altars, bargaining for innocent souls with the eternal judge of all the earth. An ethical vision emerges from such encounters, anchoring and anchored in a larger metaphysical intuition. Together, these give meaning to the events of a shared history and create a sense of peoplehood and mission for those who win the name of Israel. Israel's idea of mission makes common notions of fate or destiny look dark, flat, even opaque by contrast. But part of the Israelite mission from the very beginning was a demand for critical thinking. It was only by their veracity that true prophets were to be distinguished from false ones. Even Moses, the Rambam tells us, would rightly be doubted and questioned by the people he had come to free for one should never simply accept at face value a purportedly inspired message, even if its content is just what one most longed to hear. 
What we take up from our surroundings must be scrutinized. What is preserved or revived from the past will endure only if it is not swallowed unquestioningly but chewed over, digested, made sense of, even as it is tested and made and put to use. It is not necessary, Maimonides observes, for a prophet to have all the virtues and no faults, whatever. Even Moses lost his temper. Even Aaron buckled to the vox populi. Miriam, along with Aaron, slipped into invidious talk against Moses for marrying a black woman and vaulted from there to the notion that her converse with God and Aaron's somehow rivaled that of Moses, which was no mere epiphany, as Maimonides points out, but the framing of a law and a way of life. Past lapses were not all redeemed. Not every act of David's or of Solomon's or even of Moses himself becomes a norm. Elijah's mission was undercut by his wrath. True, the Rambam writes, he challenged only those who flouted God's authority. Still, the sages declare that God took him from the world, Maimonides writes, saying, no one is fit to govern men who has so much zeal as you, for you will be the death of them. Even a paragon, then, is not an idol, and no saint is an all-sufficient guide. God sets the norms, but even these demand interpretation, and to spell out the demands of the living God in every age, they must continually be revisioned. Only so can they be lived as law, and not laid by in a reliquary, sacred, silent, and untouched, or ossified into practices that swiftly lose their meaning and purchase on our lives and our spirits. The meta-tradition that keeps a practice or idea fresh is a culture of critical appropriation. That kind of culture is especially apposite in America, where the world itself seems new and young, and it suits the culture of Israel, since we are, as our historic lover rightly paints us, a stiff-necked people, not readily bent to the yoke of credence or obedience. We learn from our experience of history, from the cultures that surround us, with valuable or terrible examples. We triangulate from what we see, and that allows us, Pache the postmoderns, a measure of self-criticism and objectivity. We can stand, in some measure, outside ourselves, even as we learn to live comfortably, but never too comfortably, in our own skin. Some might make a boast of their credo quia absurdum, but Maimonides argues that no faith is possible without understanding, and understanding demands a critical edge, a nose for the problematic, a sense that actions and choices must heed what we know and will be vapid or inane or dangerous if based on ignorance. The 20th century novelist Chaim Chazaz describes the intellectual honesty that we need for the kind of long-distance run that our history sets out for us as an odd hybrid commitment, an odd hybrid combination of commitment with doubt. It is, he says, a Jewish trait, very, very Jewish, to believe with absolute faith, with glowing faith, with all their hearts and souls, and at the same time, just very slightly, not to believe. The tiniest little bit, and that tiny little bit Chazaz says, that tiny little bit is the decisive thing. Critical appropriation demands both creativity and responsibility, respect for ground one and vigorous winnowing of what, we, what must be let go. That kind of critical creativity has always been the key to our survival. It remains the key to the living work of Jewish philosophy. Thank you very much. I think we have time for one or two questions. We started a little bit late, I'm afraid. 
None? Yes, I think there's a question over there. Hard to hear you. It's true that enlightenment did what? Challenged a lot of religious doctrinal ideas. Sure. But it seems to have created a lot of very, very strong dogmas itself, um, which may be very difficult to hold. Um, but I think, um, for instance, that American political discourse seems to be full of dogmas, which have made very good dogmas, but you know, as someone Okay. Sure, sure. I, I, uh, may, I, I, may I just repeat the question? Would you I, repeat, I can, go ahead sure, and repeat the question? Sure. Thank you. Uh, question was, uh, uh, he wants me to clarify what I mean by dogma, what I include, what I might want to exclude. Uh, he observes that, uh, uh, you know, coming to America from the outside, uh, we notice a lot of dogmas. He notices a lot of dogmas that... Uh, they don't get questioned here. Maybe it's a good thing that some of them don't get questioned, but they're, uh, they're very noticeable. Uh, uh, there are specific dogmas that are associated with the Enlightenment, so it's throwing out one set of dogmas in favor of another. And I, I, I thank you for that question. It's a very good one. Um, often you'll notice in, in ancient mythologies uh, when, when the titans get thrown out by the, by the gods, you're really uh, seeing the displacement of, of one religion by another, and it's, it's, it's very commonplace that... Uh, that, that in order to set out, uh, in order to, to get rid of uh, one set of dogmas, you, 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 you're, you're in the service of another set. Uh, very good point. Um, let me first try and define what I meant by a dogma. I meant uh, by a dogma a, uh, a view which is not only unquestioned, but also uh, enforced. I was particularly concerned with the enforcement of, of beliefs. And um, I, find that, uh, I find that troubling. Uh, that doesn't mean that we won't have certain standards. Um, if you take a notion like rights, uh, the reason rights get enforced is not because of a dogma. The reason rights get enforced is because that's the condition for a society like ours to uh, exist at all, let alone flourish. Um, naturally, there'll be a, there'll be a corresponding view that, that rights are, are sacrosanct. And you'll notice that when there is such a view, um, it, um, it does sometimes get questioned, as, for example, when people talk about exceptions or they talk about conflicts of rights and so forth. Um, what, what counts as a right, if you set something up on that kind of high pedestal, you know, rights are, rights are by definition what's sacrosanct and therefore what counts as a right becomes much disputed, you know. Thus, it used, to be, it used to be a right not to undergo an abortion. Now it's a right to undergo an abortion. Maybe that'll change again. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the material content of those concepts can change. But what I, what I found really objectionable um, is, is the imposition of, of, of a set of beliefs. 
I think that uh, that's unphilosophical, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's not in keeping with uh, the American ideal that people should have to struggle and work out their beliefs for themselves. So what I was, what I was finding welcome and, and, and helpful in the Jewish tradition is that the Jewish tradition uh, doesn't actually operate that way. It, uh, it doesn't consist of a catechism. The notion of, of uh, faith that we have is understood in practical terms as a matter of trust. God himself is said to be faithful, which means trustworthy. Uh, that, that's the kind of thing that, that I'm thinking of. And then I, I had two, two difficulties about it. Uh, one is that um, we, uh, in, in Jewish law, does seem to want to enforce rituals. For example, in the Bible, uh, uh, breaking the Sabbath is a capital offense. Uh, property crimes aren't a capital offense in the Bible. Breaking the Sabbath is. Um, and the other, the other difficulty is that there seem to be uh, certain underlying ideas which are foundational. And my argument was, uh, and this is a point where I was not just admiring the tradition but trying to work with it philosophically, uh, my argument was that uh, if we really trust the soundness of those ideas, we don't have to enforce them. They will, they will be attractive and people will, will uh, welcome them and embrace them of their, of their own volition. And uh, I am leaning on Mendelssohn a little there because Mendelssohn believes that, uh, that the attractiveness of those ideas and the reasonableness of, uh, of those ideas is what, is what should attract people to them and that a, force, a forced faith is necessarily insincere. So, uh, so I'm parsing what Sartre said. Sartre thought that all faith was bad faith. I think that that's because the kind of faith that he was thinking about was dogmatically enforced. Well, thank you very much. I think what the plan is for us to take a five-minute break now, not a 15-minute break as the program suggests, and um, get back to our, for our last session, and we'll be able to finish a little bit earlier that way. Thank you so much, Professor Goodman. Thanks to our uh, co-sponsors. Uh, Professor Martha Himmelfarb and the Department of Religion, a special word of thanks to Martha and the department, uh, and to Professor Dr. Rabbi uh, Alan Middleman, who is not only a co-sponsor with Finkelstein uh, Institute, but also is the founder of the conference. This was his idea, and a very wonderful idea it was. I hope you'll join me in thanking Alan. For <laughs> Alan, let me say publicly that I hope that this will be only the first of uh, many times that we'll be able to work together uh, with the Finkelstein Institute. We appreciate it very much. Well, to close our uh, conference, we have one of our nation's most distinguished political philosophers. William Galston is a senior fellow of the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. He's also a founding co-editor of the journal The Responsive Community. He's the author of uh, six books, including Liberal Purposes, which uh, certainly was a very important uh, book in introducing me uh, to contemporary political theory, Liberal Pluralism and Public Matters. He's the author of uh, numerous, indeed one might say innumerable, articles on American politics, public policy, political uh, philosophy, uh, all wonderful, powerful, and influential writings. Uh, Professor Galston has also been active in the political sphere, having served as a deputy assistant in the domestic policy uh, shop to President Clinton. 
Uh, he's also been a senior advisor to Albert uh, Gore, Jr. during uh, Vice President Gore's presidential campaign, and he was issues director of Walter Mondale's campaign. Uh, also on the other side of the street, sort of, he was chief speechwriter in John Anderson's presidential uh, campaign. For those of you who remember John Anderson's presidential campaign many uh, years ago. Uh, some uh, of his fellow liberals, I think it's fair to say, sometimes accuse Bill of being every conservative's favorite liberal. Uh, he's certainly my favorite liberal. Uh, but uh, he's one who has educated, I think it's fair to say, people on both sides of the ideological divide, and uh, liberals and conservatives alike are indebted to him. Uh, he uh, has served as director of the National Commission on Civic Renewal and uh, as director of economic and social programs at the Research Center for American Policy Studies in Washington. He's a founding member of the board of the National Campaign to Prevent Teen Pregnancy and chair of that campaign's task force on religion and public values. Uh, I take great pleasure in introducing, to sum up uh, and conclude our conference, uh, William Galston. Well, um, thank you, Robbie, for that excessively generous introduction, which I suspect only my mother would fully believe. Um, I will also want to want to thank you, as many others have, you know, for hosting, sponsoring, and encouraging this this event, and also Alan Alan Middleman, uh, who uh, you know, whose intellectual leadership has has made it happen. Uh, I am tempted to begin these remarks the way Admiral Stockdale began his famous appearance uh, in as Ross Perot's vice presidential candidate in that never-to-be-forgotten debate, namely, who am I and what am I doing here? Uh, you know, this is, you know, as you've made very clear throughout the past day, uh, this is a conversation that's been going on for 30 years, and you know, here I am parachuted into the middle of it. I did not say the end of it, the middle of it. Uh, who knows when it will end, if ever. Uh, and you may well be wondering why Alan would have been so reckless as to select me for this task. Well, think of me as the intelligent lay audience that you hope to reach in these, in these endeavors. Uh, my reaction to what I've heard uh, will be the reaction of someone who has not been in any sense a full party to these con conversations, but who is nonetheless you know, committed to learning what these conversations have to offer uh, to people as I am, struggling to learn more about Judaism after a rather slow start in my youth, to put it mildly, and also a contribution to uh, gen general intellectual intellectual life. And let me begin where I think a commentator on these proceedings would have to begin with some meditations on the concept of Jewish philosophy and Jewish philosophers. And I, I want to begin with a couple of sentences from Professor Novak as, the, as one of my texts for this drosh. Uh, and I quote, a Jewish philosopher must be personally committed to the Jewish tradition. Without that full existential commitment, 
a Jewish philosopher is no more than a philosopher who happens to be a Jew. I have to say that proposition has the ring of truth to me. Uh, some may wish to argue with it, but I'd like to try to reason from it and meditate upon it. Now, let me offer a parallel proposition. It would go as follows. An Athenian philosopher must be personally committed to the Athenian tradition. Well, perhaps so, but clearly in that sense, Socrates was not an Athenian philosopher. He was a philosopher who happened to be in Athens, to paraphrase, paraphrase Professor Novak. Now, what I want to ask you is whether there isn't something generalizable about what I've just said about Socrates. Uh, or to put this more abstractly, is the activity of philosophy in the fullest sense compatible with an existential commitment to anything other than the activity of philosophy itself? I want to be bold enough to suggest that the answer to that question is no. We may want to discuss that as well. But I think you can see where I'm going. A Jewish philosopher, in the sense in which, you know, following Novak, uh, I interpret that term, is a Jew first and a philosopher second. Jewish philosophizing comes to an end, comes to a stop in the commitment to the tradition itself. And to put that the other way around, if philosophy means that in principle everything is open to question, everything, then the phrase Jewish philosophy is an oxymoron. Now, this is a distinction, I would suggest, with a difference. And to illustrate this difference, and you know, I don't mean to pick on Professor Novak, but indeed to try to learn, learn from him, uh, in an arresting sentence in his presentation, he stated, and I quote, the task of philosophy is to show how revelation is possible in the world. I'll remember that one for a long time. Uh, understood in that sense, philosophy is quite literally the handmaiden of theology. Now let's compare that proposition to other possible approaches. One might say that in Spinoza's view, the task of philosophy is just the reverse of what Novak says it is. Uh, that is to say, to demonstrate the impossibility of revelation in the world, or to put that somewhat more positively, to achieve the full and final vindication of philosophy as an autonomous activity